Let me invite you to turn your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 this evening. We're going to look at what the writer of Hebrews says here about Christ as our high priest. And uh, it's said in the context of both perseverance and prayer. And so I'd like to take a, a moment and sort of set the text. It's a relatively familiar one in its context. And then I guess the sort of simple ways to show you how it works and then why that should be a motivation for us in, in that regard. So uh, look please at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you understand that its backdrop is... Uh, believers who profess faith in Christ, who are now encountering opposition and persecution, and are therefore being tempted to pull back from Christ. The, the language of chapter 10 is to shrink back because of what they're currently facing. There's a, a temptation there. And so the writer of Hebrews um, works really sort of through a cycle of the superiority of Christ, and then an exhortation on the basis of it. So sometimes when we talk about the book, you'll hear people talk about the theme of the book is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And, and I would say that that's not really a complete theme. That's really more, if I could put it this way, sort of the topic of the book, the superiority of Christ. The complete idea is because of the superiority of Christ, we must never turn away from him. All right? It's not just enough to think Jesus is better than everything else. It's actually to come to the conclusion, because he's better than everything else, we can look nowhere else. And so he walks through this process of establishing the superiority of Jesus, and woven between those sections, talking about his superiority, are exhortation or warnings. If we turn away, for instance, the first one in chapter 2 is, if we neglect so great a salvation, how can we escape? Right? If God has provided this great salvation in Jesus Christ and we turn away from it, how can we escape from the judgment that's coming? There's no other answer except for Jesus Christ. He is superior uh, to anything and everything else. And so I say that to look at that first therefore in verse 14, right? So this is coming on the heels of a long section exhorting these believers to hold fast to their confession of faith. Go to chapter 3 and verse 1, and you can see where he introduces this idea of, of the priesthood at the end of chapter 2, I should say. Therefore, he had to be made like in his brethren in all things, 2.17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then comes this long section about the superiority of Jesus and the rest that he promises and how that has to be the focal point on it. And he's coming back to the end of that. And he's really coming back around to the, the sort of the therefore that builds off of this one. Because Jesus is this great priest, because he is our high priest, and we should hold fast to our confession, in 4.14 he says, therefore, and I think you should jump down to the last part of the verse, let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus has done for us what he's done. We should not let go of that confession. And then he gives us a further reason for that in verse 15, right? Why? Because we have, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, right? He doesn't dismiss our weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews doesn't dismiss them. He points us to a high priest who can sympathize with them. And that ought to cause us to hold fast, right? God is is not indifferent to the struggle they're facing. God actually has a priest for us who can sympathize with what they're experiencing. And then that leads to another conclusion. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near. I don't, it almost almost can sound a little... uh, you know, not contradictory, but awkward, right? Hold fast. I mean, don't move. Stand your ground. And then he goes, so draw near, right? You you stand your ground on your confession of faith doesn't mean that you're actually sort of static. It actually means you're turning to God. You're drawing near to the throne of grace. You're looking to God for the help that you need to do that. Now, all of that is wrapped around these descriptions of who, uh, a description of Jesus Christ that, that is to be the motivation for us to draw near. And so what I'd like to do, really just uh, in, a, in more of a, like trying to prepare our hearts to come to the table way, is just remind us of what this text says about that. The first motivation is found in verse 14, and that is rooted in who Jesus is. Notice it says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So between the Father and us is this mediator, this great high priest who is actually the Son of God, that he is the one who is our representative before God and the one who is our mediator, our intercessor. Right? And, 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 the, and the importance of that, obviously, um, is rooted in who Jesus is, his, his existence as the Son of God. Right? If you think about it in terms of the uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth, his relationship to the Father is one that is eternal. 
right? There is a love between the Father and Son that John 17 says existed before the world did. Love did not begin at the creation. It has always existed in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because God is love. That's something different than, for instance, the wrath of God. The wrath of God did not exist before sin. There was nothing for God's righteousness to look at with judgment. Wrath is a a transitory, passing expression of God's nature. It's not an eternal one. Love is an eternal one because the Father, Son, and Spirit always loved each other. The Son is the delight of the Father. The Son receives the full pleasure of the Father. He is delighted in His Son. So the Son has this unique relationship to the Father, and therefore, He is our best representative possible, right? If you're going to look for somebody to go and sort of plead your cause, you wouldn't send somebody who is in a hostile relationship with them. I wouldn't send my enemy or this person's enemy to ask them a favor, right? You would want someone who, who has such a relationship that they would be inclined to love and carry out the desire of that person because of that relationship. That's the Son of God. The Son of God, fully accepted by the Father, beloved by the Father, stands in the presence of the Father as our mediator. But he also has a unique relationship to us. Right? The passage that I read in chapter 2 was actually talking about the fact that, that it was necessary for the Son to take to himself human nature so that he could be a brother with us. He actually partakes of our nature so that he bears a relationship to us that this text will describe as being able to relate to us in ways that um, that that deity could not. I'll say it that way. The divine nature is never tired. The divine nature experiences no suffering, no weakness, no temptation. Right? God cannot be tempted. So it's Jesus in his humanity that experiences the sinless infirmities of our humanity, right? The, the one that's described here was one that, that perhaps some of their readers, but certainly they had heard from the readers or the people who had done this. They had watched this one at, asleep in the hull of a boat because he was so tired that a storm was raging and he slept right through it. They saw this one tired and beaten, mocked and rejected. They understood that he had experienced the full ramifications of what it means to be human except for sin. 
So this one, this great high priest, made a priest, not by birth, but by oath, later the writer of Hebrews would say, because Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. He was a descendant of David. So he has a unique priesthood in which he is both king and priest, like Melchizedek. He has a unique relationship, and he alone can be the mediator between God and humans. There is no other, right? There's no one who stands between the sinner and God except for Jesus, because there's no one who can perfectly represent humans before God and perfectly represent God to humans. Every promise of God comes to us through Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1 says, and and those promises are yes in Christ. And if we ever want to approach God, we have to approach him through Christ because it's through him that we offer our amen. And Jesus was unmistakably clear about this, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because he is the great high priest, the Son of God, who has in himself deity and humanity without mixture, but in one person so that he can be the mediator between God and humans. That's why we should go. We have a perfect great high priest who can mediate for us. Notice in verse 14, it also says something about where he currently sits, where his station is. It says, who has passed through the heavens. What this is, uh, is really just sort of a, a summary kind of statement about the completion of Christ's work. Uh, just jump back to chapter 1 for a moment, if you would, because I think it, it could help us to see uh, the context of, of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's talking about how the Son is the great revelation to us of God. Notice in verse 3. One three, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And notice, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus had completed his work, and so he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He had, he had accomplished it. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended to God, his work of providing purification of sins was completed. That's what he's meaning when he says he's passed through the heavens. In chapter 6, he'll come back and talk about the certainty of God's promise to us because it's tied to an anchor that's in the very presence of God. That's where Christ has entered in. So the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he has passed into the heavens, is a signal to us that there's no more atoning work to be done. The, The task of Christ's purification of sins has been accomplished. We... Uh, we need to be, we need to carefully think through that to make sure that we don't uh, sometimes uh, 
can think the lasting effects of Christ's death uh, and their continuing benefit to us does not mean that Christ is still being offered, right? He, He paid the penalty in full so that the righteousness that needed to be satisfied was completely satisfied and we benefit from that now. It's done. He says, it is finished. He accomplished it. All right. And, and I, I, I tend to give a decent amount of latitude for poetic expression. So, for instance, when we sing the song, Arise, My Soul Arise, which I love, right? But it says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. When it's saying five bleeding wounds, we should not be thinking that Jesus is still shedding his blood. We shouldn't be saying that he is still offering himself up as a sacrifice. I think what Wesley meant, and certainly the way I mean it when I sing it, and I would urge you to mean it that way when you sing it, is that the effects of Christ's death are still effective. That that the wounds that he bears are the signal to us of the satisfaction of God's wrath, the vindication of the Messiah. He's been raised and exalted. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has accomplished the work. We sing that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We're not saying that that Jesus is still uh, uh, pumping out blood for the salvation of sinners. We're saying that any hope of salvation is found in the benefits that come from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We, We run to Christ, and he provides for us the forgiveness. So... We would pick up this cup, for instance, and not think that the blood of Jesus is somehow being offered again for us when we come to the table. I mean, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this as a fresh sacrifice of me. Right? Christ is not being offered in sacrifice at the table. We are being reminded of the fact that he was sacrificed that he shed his blood, that he gave up his body as a sacrifice for us. He has completed that work. There's nothing more to be done. And, And that has significance for us because I stand here today still as a sinner. My sins are still growing. Right? If you count them by number... Each day stacks a few more on time, sometimes more than a few more. And I should not think, okay, I sinned some more, Jesus has to die some more. I shouldn't think, oh, I did some more sin, I have to have a fresh offering and sacrifice. Right? That's not the, that's not the, the message of Scripture. That's the, if I could, uh, just say it bluntly, that's the twisted theology of Catholicism. That every sin requires some more sacrifice. 
For sin to be absolved, you have to have some fresh sacrifice. And that's, that's not the message of Scripture. Christ has been sacrificed, and he has completed his work. He has been accepted by the Father. He has passed through the heavens, and he's seated at the right hand of God. It's done. The work is done. It was so valuable. The worth of the death of Christ cannot actually get a sin price tag put on it. But you can't, you can't think about it like, well, okay, Jesus died for my first 20,000 sins. Or Jesus died for all the sins that had been committed, but going forward, he's got to keep atoning for more and more. No, all of it found its value in who he was. He was God's son. Perfect and infinite in his deity, fully human, so that he could accomplish for us in one death what every sinner needs. There's nothing to be added to it. You cannot, you cannot think tonight, all right, I've been, I've been bad this week or bad this last month, so I better need to show up at the Lord's table because I need to, I need to get a fresh dose to make up for all the stuff I've done wrong. Right? You don't add anything to what Jesus did. Not one thing. Because if you try to add anything to it, you have diminished it completely. You have effectively rejected the fullness and sufficiency of, sacri- of his sacrifice. Right, Because if righteousness, the language of Paul in Galatians 2, if righteousness comes by the law, that is by obedience, then Christ died in vain. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no two-way program. It is either based on the full sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice or it rests on our shoulders. It's one or the other. And I am so glad that it doesn't rest on my shoulders. It rests on the shoulders of the one who is perfectly sufficient to it. So so when I stand here in need of God's mercy and grace, I know at his right hand is the full and finished work of Jesus Christ to be my only hope. Jesus purchased for me Everything that I need for life and godliness. When he was on that cross, he was purchasing everything that I need. There's nothing short. He purchased it all. And so I can come to God knowing that what I need has been made available to me. Because of Jesus. Not because me. Not because I've been a good boy. Not because I've done a bunch of stuff. I'm coming because the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father purchased it for me. It awaits my asking. He has everything that I need. 
And he invites me to come. He invites me to come. And look at as well in the middle of verse 15, or the, really sort of the whole point of verse 15, I suppose, is that it highlights how Jesus serves as a priest. And that is he does so with sympathy. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You know, the Old Testament talks about the fact that God knows our frame, that it is but dust. And the New Testament shows us that the Son of God took that frame upon himself. He, He can identify with sinners because he took the nature of humanity. And he can look with us, look on us with sympathy, right? He is, uh, he is so much more gracious than us. I mean, think, uh, I mean, we, you know, we sort of enshrine statements like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Right? Somebody messes up, we'll, okay, we'll cut you a little slack. They mess up again. I get it. Okay, that's enough. Aren't you thankful Jesus doesn't do that? Aren't you thankful that he looks out at his sheep with loving kindness and tenderness and sympathy? He understands that we are weak. He understands that, that we face temptation. He understands that there's difficulty. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has a heart for them because he walked this planet. He understands what it means to face the kind of sinless, sinless infirmities that we all have, right? We, we get sick, we, we get beat up, we face pain, we face persecution. We face disappointment. He understands all of that. And then he actually endured temptation. And I would suggest that he endured it to a greater degree than any of us ever have because he didn't surrender to it. He felt, he felt the full pressure because if I surrender to temptation, then I've caved before I felt the full pressure of it. The, the, the dam, the wall on the dam broke. For Jesus, it never broke. I mean, he went toe-to-toe with Satan, attacking him and trying to do uh, in his life what Satan effectively did in Adam's. And again, here we have to think, and I don't, we don't have time to unpack it all, but, but remember, Adam did, was not a sinner when he sinned. Right? Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment. There was no internal fallen nature in Adam. Right? So the whole attack came to him from outside, and he allowed his desires... And in one case, a desire for something that just looked good for food to be drawn away, like James says, and enticed. Jesus, without a sin nature, 
faced a similar attack from Satan, coming after him to get him to step outside of the umbrella of obedience to the Father. And Jesus resisted it completely. And we we probably can never understand the fullness of that but if you look at if you look at him in in the garden before his death you see a man in deep agony over what he's going to face he says my soul is troubled he's asking his disciples to pray with him He is sweating profusely under the pressure that's about to come to him. And he stands firm in that temptation. So he knows what it's like. He sympathizes with us. He doesn't look at us and go, you baby. He doesn't look at us and dismiss us. He doesn't minimize it. He has an answer for it. And that's the thing we have to see. Because it's not that Jesus puts his arm around us, pats on the back, and says, it's going to be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. He actually has the answer for us. And that's what verse 16 says. We can come and get grace and mercy. Right? So the sympathy is intended to cause us to have a heart toward Christ that wants to run to him. Right? Wants to run to him. I mean, I imagine most of us in here somewhere along the line have failed somebody important to us. Right? And, and the thought of turning to that person and having to, you know, having to go to them and, and acknowledge our, our failure and ask for their forgiveness and, and, and seek help from them, right? We all know that there are some people that make that very hard, right? They don't communicate to us, arms wide open, come, come, I'm ready to forgive, come, I'm ready to restore. Come, I'm ready to help. But this text is saying that's that's what Jesus is like. He's looking across to us from his seat next to the Father and saying, Come, come to me. I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will help you. You will get mercy from me. You will get grace from me. Right? And the whole point of mercy and grace is he's not going to go, hey, okay, so here's five hoops you have to hop through. Make sure you, you know, you, 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 you drag your, you know, yourself through the mud to get this from me. Go beat yourself mentally and emotionally. You know, make sure you, you, you uh, feel like a rotten, horrible person and, 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 you know, walk around in shame and despair about it. No, he says, it's a throne of grace. There's mercy, compassion, pity, 
There's unmerited favor for us. Why would we turn anywhere else? Why would we look to anyone else? Why would we hesitate to come to Jesus? Right? He he gave himself up for us. I mean, there's every incentive in this passage to see in the priesthood of Jesus enormous incentive to pray. Don't feel close to the Lord? Then run to him. You failed the Lord? Then go to him for cleansing. You're struggling? Then go to him for strength. I mean, none of the things that we would start to say, well, I, I really can't pray, I'm, 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 I'm failing, or I'm struggling, or my heart's cold. None of those, none of those stand up when you consider who Jesus is, where he is, what he's like, and what he offers to us. They're, in fact, not reasons to go away from Jesus, They're actually reasons to run to him. I'm weak. I need his help then. I'm sinning. I need his cleansing. I'm hurting. I need his help. Right? Every reason to come to him. Because he is a perfect, gracious, sympathetic high priest for us. And we get the privilege of being reminded of the great cost that he paid so that he might be that priest in the shedding of his blood and the offering of his body.